the things that happened on the 24th and after, everything is different. Everything will be judged differently, looked at differently than before. Today is Friday, February 25th, and welcome to a special Ukraine episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Scott Kulinane, Executive Director of the U.S.-Europe Alliance, Martha Miller, former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Sarah Stewart, executive director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, and I'm Lester Munson, senior fellow at NSI and your host. We've gathered today to discuss the ongoing situation in Ukraine as it stands on the morning of Friday, February 25th, 2022. We'll be discussing the Biden administration's sanctions on Ukraine, Europe's reaction to the invasion, and what might be next for Putin, and how all of this can shape national security for the United States going forward. We are talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which, of course, is an event that offends our most basic assumptions about human rights and the rule of law. But it is also something that has profound consequences for the future, not just of Europe, but also of U.S. national security policy. So lots of issues to explore. Scott, let's start with you. Uh, You're coming to us from Berlin, notably. Uh, Talk to us about what you're seeing. The stories coming out of Ukraine are both terrible and amazing. We've seen uh, uh, stories of a terrific Ukrainian resistance to Russian aggression. We've also heard stories of uh, atrocities by the Russians. There have been some. It's been a lot of a lot of blood, a lot of lives lost already. Um, what What are your thoughts as we enter day three of this war here? Uh, thanks, Les. I, I think um, the first thing I would say to, to orient um, our listeners, um, I think I would say the events of this week. Um, are akin to 9-11. I think of this as, as what 9-11 was for the U.S. This is 9-11 for Europe. The things that happened on the 24th and after, uh, everything is different. Everything will be judged differently, looked at differently than before. Uh, this, this is uh, an event of such monumental consequence. Um, I think we're still struggling to understand all of the ramifications and what this means. Uh, Certainly looking at uh, the Russian military operation in Ukraine, it's certainly early days. As we record this, we're not even 48 hours into the operation. Uh, And so we can tell uh, the Russians are uh, throwing a lot of military hardware at Ukraine, um, but certainly not everything they have. Um, I think some of the early reactions um, is that uh, in some ways, perhaps the Russian military performance, or at least the, the volume uh, of Russian military hardware, has been somewhat underwhelming. And uh, on the flip side, I think we can also say perhaps the Ukrainian defense has been somewhat overperforming um, what some of the worst predictions were. Um, at least a portion of the Ukrainian air defense seems to be operational, uh, along with the Ukrainian Air Force. And we have at least some reports, um, notably uh the airport outside Kyiv, uh, the Antonov airport, where Ukraine has managed uh, successful counterattacks. Um, so uh, it's early, but Ukraine um, is in some ways holding its own against uh, quite overwhelming odds. Um, but of course, as time goes on, there's a question of, of how long that can be sustained and to what, uh, to what extent Ukraine or Ukrainian forces um, can be resupplied. Uh, the other thing uh, I should mention uh, is as 
uh, as the conflict continues, um, as increased uh, U.S. military forces uh, find their way to Europe from North America or from Germany to be forward deployed in the Baltics, Romania, Poland, um, there is, uh, uh, it's not for certain at this point that the conflict will remain contained within the borders of Ukraine. We already have at least some um, social media reports um, from yesterday and today of perhaps as many as two uh, civilian ships in the Black Sea being hit by, um, uh, by military fire, um, almost certainly from Russia. Uh, these two ships were, I would believe one was, one was uh, Moldovan flagged and the other Turkish. Um, and so we have a lot, of, a lot of military hardware moving around, a lot of missiles, a lot of airplanes. Um, and, uh, and it's not uh, inconceivable for there to be a miscalculation or for there to be an accident. So at the moment, this is uh, uh, the battle for Ukraine, um, but we should be careful uh, not to make the assumption that it will stay there. Martha, uh, let's let's talk about uh, the response from the West to Russian aggression. There's been a lot of talk about U.S. and European allies, uh, their their willingness to impose severe economic sanctions on Russia because of this. There have been discussions within NATO. Uh, you follow German politics in particular pretty closely. Germany plays plays a big role in this conversation. Can you can you talk about the how the Germans have responded to what we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, sure. Um, and, it, you know, it's um, it's been interesting to watch this as someone who's, li- you know, I lived in Germany in the mid-1990s, uh, you know, in the, the period just after reunification. Um, you know, they have always had a, a cultural and historical tie to Russia, going back to Catherine the Great. Um, more recently, of course, uh, during the Cold War with the Ostpolitik, uh, of Willy Brandt uh, from West Germany and, of course, East Germany, which was under the, the tutelage of the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, I will say, you know, then on, layered on top of that, you have the guilt uh, from World War II, which is a very mixed bag and also looks different whether you were West German versus East German. So it's a very complicated um, landscape politically uh, because of that. Um, and I think at first, you know, as, as everyone, we were all watching the, the movement of, of military equipment and, and troops being moved, you know, starting in November uh, to you know, the borders of Ukraine. Um, and, you know, Germany was trying very hard to, to bring about, uh, you know, a peace. And they, they do have a very active peace movement that, that dates back, you know, to the time of West Germany. Um, and there's a lot of genuine belief in, in pursuing that path. They, unfortunately, though, uh, you know, as part of that, they have laws that block um, the sale of, of weapons um, to conflict zones. And, uh, you know, what, what I think really upset a lot of allies, particularly Central and Eastern Europeans and the Baltics, uh, was when they blocked a third-party sale of, of weapons they had sold, um, I believe it was to Estonia, that Estonia wanted to give to Ukraine. Uh, that was sort of a final straw for a lot of people. Um, and, and it was viewed, along with Nord Stream 2, as, as, as a sort of soft betrayal by Germany. Um, so 
in any case, I think Putin's speech, uh, Putin's just really in kind of uh, extraordinary speech the other day, uh, chastened quite a few people. It moved the SPD, I think, in the right direction, um, the Social Democratic Party, which is Chancellor Schultz's party. Uh, It moved a lot of people in the right direction. It it really, this has forced a conversation about, a fundamental conversation about Germany's role in the world and particularly its relationship to Russia. Uh, So that's, you know, the, that's a, I guess, a, a, a conversation that should have taken place maybe long ago, but it's complicated because uh, the East German, the, the former East German population uh, still have strong bonds to Russia. Um, and this is something that's not often talked about, but it's it's very real. Uh, 43% of East Germans blame the United States for this crisis. Uh, for only 49% of Germans writ large blame Russia. So, you know, this is a very complicated political dynamic within Germany, which makes it very difficult for the German government to take decisive action and have moral clarity. And I think, you know, when this was juxtaposed with, for example, a country like Denmark that, that only has, you know, 500, you know, 5 million something people in their country, and they immediately, they immediately sent arms and, and support to Ukraine. There was no hesitation. And so I think the juxtaposition of Germany with allies like Denmark, that really underscores this this difference in in posture and relationship within NATO uh, and to Russia. Sarah, I want to turn to the the economic sanctions issue. Some, Some pretty tough sanctions were announced by the Biden administration and by Europeans yesterday. Uh, Pretty tough sanctions on big Russian banks, uh, export controls, some sectoral moves that that may have an impact down the road. But there's all, there was also some criticism that they didn't go far enough. We didn't see an effort to remove Russia from the SWIFT international transaction system. Uh, we're not seeing any real effort to limit Russian energy exports. What, what's your assessment of what we've seen so far on the economic sanctions front, and then what the what the utility could be going forward in terms of changing Russian behavior. Thanks, Les. Uh, yeah, yesterday was uh, pretty unprecedented in a number of ways, um, especially for those who are following uh, sanctions coming out of the Treasury Department and the export controls coming out of the Department of Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security. Um, you know, in, in the past few years, these are issues that have gotten um, a lot more traction in the public view, and people are starting to read about entity listings and things like this, you know, on front page of the newspaper, which was not always the case. Um, up until, you know, the, the last few weeks, it's largely been um, focused on, you know, China and Huawei, and then some sanctions on, on Russia having to do with the cyber attacks. But yesterday, um, the U.S. And, and a number of its partners did announce some pretty sweeping sanctions. Um, you're right. Uh, these do cover certain things and not others. Um, you know, question as to um, whether or not the reason for that is to leave some of the most powerful sanctions available um, as needed to kind of you know, ratchet up uh, the pressure on Russia. Um, But also, you know, I think we need to think about whether or not these are moves that are going to provoke 
uh, major retaliation uh, against the U.S. and allies by Russia in the form of cyber attacks or others. So maybe let's just break it down. Uh, We've got the Treasury Department coming out with sanctions covering approximately 80% of banking assets, uh, covers major Russian banks and 90 subsidiaries around the world. Uh, blocking sanctions on major banks and Russian elites. And what that means is that any assets in the U.S. are frozen immediately and the Kremlin cannot access them. We have uh, sanctions that prohibit transactions or dealings by persons in new debtor equity with Russian uh, state-owned enterprises. So again, another move to try and cut off access to U.S. capital. Uh, sanctions on Belarus for supporting Russia in all of this. And that's on the Treasury side. <laughs> on the BIS side, um, a number of new sweeping export controls across a range of dual use items, some of which were never needed. You never needed a license uh, to export to Russia before. Now you're going to. Um, these are focused largely on electronics, computers, information technology systems, sensors, lasers, navigation marine and aerospace. So these are things that the Russian government may need, the military may need. Um, the, you know, these are designed to basically cut off their, their supply. 49 new entities have been added to the, the entity list. Um, there is a new policy of denial for any export license that is filed, a major restriction in the number of uh, license exceptions that will be granted. And then two new, uh, somewhat novel moves um, that have been talked about in the lead up to yesterday that involve this principle in our regulations called the foreign direct product rule. And what this means is that for certain products that are made outside of the United States, so they are foreign produced, but they are made with U.S. software or technology or from a piece of equipment that is the direct product of U.S. software technology. They now are subject to export licensing requirements if they are going to Russia. So this is really a major step towards cutting off Russia's access to the global supply of things like semiconductors. So those are the things that are covered. Uh, and there's, there's, that's an over, oversimplified version of it. This is highly technical stuff, but a, a, a pretty decent summary. What isn't covered? Oil and gas, as you mentioned, uh, swift transactions. Putin himself could be sanctioned and has not yet been. Um, and again, you know, part of that may be strategic that they're holding out on, you know, some of these, some of these even tougher sanctions. Uh, to see, you know, where things go in the next couple of days. Part of that is political, as Martha was talking about, you know, with SWIFT and and some of the complications with with Germany. Um, We need to be thinking about if we do ratchet up these sanctions, you know, what does that mean in terms of retaliation against us um, and against U.S. persons and, and allies? Uh, so that's one consideration. And and the other, and, and this is, you know, more remote at this time, but I think people are starting to talk about it. And I think it's worth really keeping an eye on as the U.S. and allies are cutting off Russia's access to, you know, capital and to critical items. Who is going to fill that void? 
And I think that that is a question that we should be thinking about because Russia can only take it so far. And so the countries that are going to come to Russia's aid are probably not going to be necessarily friends of the United States. Well, Sarah, let me let me in that vein, let me ask you a follow up question. Uh, Some folks have said in the policy space that if we did pursue things like SWIFT, like removing uh, Russia from the SWIFT system, that it could accelerate uh, the end of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Do you do you think there's legitimacy to that view? It's a great question. I I haven't uh, I haven't studied it closely enough to know if that is a reasonable outcome to all of this. What I do know is that you know whenever we're talking about sanctions or export controls, there is a balance that is being trying to be struck. Um, by, you know, politicians in the U.S. and elsewhere, which is, you know, what do we do to get the outcome that we want with the least pain on people who are not the subject of the, you know, offensive behavior? So, you know, I think that some of that is coming into it. Again, I I, I don't want to take, take Swift off the table. I think that could be something that does come to pass. It just hasn't yet. Scott, let's uh, let's turn back to the immediate issue at hand: uh, the Russian aggression, the, this invasion of this utterly unprecedented uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia, unprovoked, uh, unmerited, uh, seemingly the the decision of of a madman uh, or someone with uh, just uh, inhuman ambitions. What what do you so speaking of him, Vladimir Putin? What do you think his end game is here? What's the outcome that he's looking for through this military action? So to answer that, I, the usual narrative to explain how this ends would be that uh, Putin is seeking to undo the Euromaidan revolution of 2014. That he saw uh, that color revolution um, not as an expression of legitimate Ukrainian politics and and popular opinion. Um, But as he said on multiple occasions, he doesn't believe uh, Ukraine is a real country. Ukraine is incapable of having its own politics. And so he he sees Euromaidan um, as a Western, uh, as a CIA-created revolution, a CIA coup, Um, perhaps mere imaging, his his KGB perspective. Um, And so uh, his notion now is to undo that. And just as Yanukovych fled Kiev uh, in 2014 and a new government was put in its place, uh, he wishes to create a situation where Zelensky uh, flees Kiev and he is able to put a, a, a puppet government um, on the seat of power um, in Kiev. And, and in his mind, reverse what happened in 2014. Uh, that's, you know, I think a, a conventional narrative. You know, one other way of explaining this um, that came to my mind as I was watching Putin um, give his various uh, speeches in the last couple of days um, from the Kremlin, you, we heard him talk about denazifying Ukraine and, and, and preventing or stopping genocide. Uh, these uh, really... Uh, nonsensical claims. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Zelensky is a you know, Jewish heritage. And so the idea that there needs to be a denazification of Ukraine is, 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 is ridiculous. Um, and, and we also you know, know and we've seen how much uh, the, the Putin regime has embraced 
this myth uh, of the great patriotic war and of World War II. And, and I, I almost think, you, you know, it's, it's, it's always easy to psycho, you know, be an armchair psychoanalysis, but um, I, I think Putin is living in a little bit of a, of a reality bubble and he's lost touch. You know, he never knew the West terribly well to begin with. And I think maybe between his isolation, between COVID um, and uh, between being in power for so many years, uh, he has um, lost touch um, with reality. And I, I think he um, might see himself as the modern day Stalin. And he, he, is, he is cosplaying Stalin 1944. And he is going to reenact the great patriotic war by recapturing uh, parts of, of the Russian empire that were taken by evil forces, uh, by Nazis from the West who are making genocide. Um, and it's really, um, it, it's really scary. Um, but I, I think how he, how he talks um, and the language he uses, language he uses, it, it's, hard, um, it's hard not to come to the conclusion um, that, 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 we, that, we are, that we are facing the 21st century Stalin. Martha. Uh, so, Scott, you're also, um, I, this provoked a lot of thoughts on my part as well, particularly the term denazification. So the Great Patriotic War is actually still memorialized in Berlin proper with Treptow Park, the Soviet War Memorial, where it is a cemetery for Soviet soldiers who... Um, you know, the Soviets taught East Germans, your Soviet brothers saved you from the clutches of Nazism, right? I actually have been wondering if this war, use of the term Nazi has also been part of a way to get under the skin of people in Germany to per- perhaps, you know, stoke division and also sympathy for Russia. Um, you know, they've received, Germans have received a lot of criticism for ignoring uh, their crimes in Ukraine in World War II and, and really focusing on their, you know, all the Russians who died. Um, and I tell you, this is a very powerful thing. East Germans who, who made jokes about all sorts of things, about the GDR, about the, the government, they were always, they treated the Soviet war dead with great reverence. And the left party, which is the successor party to the SED, um, the East German uh, political party, the um, they actually hold commemorative events in the Bundestag proper to commemorate the Soviet war dead and invite members of the Duma to attend these events. You can go on Dilinka's website uh, to to see this, and I think they they had a uh, they had a press release for their event this past year uh, saying, you know, peace with Russia is our obligation, um, and in, you know, then talk about you know calls to dissolve NATO. <laughs> so. Uh, so anyway, I, I just I can't help but think about disinformation. And, um, you know, he's not only talking to the Russian people to justify his war. I think he's also talking to people who um, who with whom this resonates. If, if this is true, Scott and Martha, that Putin is operating a bit as a madman and using these historical tropes to advance his his war aims, what are what are the implications for other nations in Europe, for Poland, for the Baltics, for Moldova, for Slovakia, the other countries on, on Russia's periphery. What is, what's next for them? Uh, I think the lesson that we have to take from this week's event is, is obviously that uh, a, a conventional 
war in Europe um, is no longer unthinkable. Uh, I know where I am in Berlin right now. Um, I, I think the reaction here has been um, shock. I mean, re really genuine um, shock that something like this is possible. Um, you know, from from the German border to the western part of Ukraine is maybe a six-hour drive. Um, it's not that far away, and uh, and so I, I think for uh, for the NATO allies, for um, for the Baltics, um, that this that this this post Cold War moment of of opportunity, um, uh, you know, has kind of um, has run out, and and when we have to be ready. Um, uh, uh, to fight and to support each other, and and we see this with, um, you know, even small Estonia um, and, and Lithuania have have been incredibly active in sending weapons to Ukraine and and and, and being helpful to Ukraine, and uh, they they get it. They 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 see that um, the, the way the way NATO, the way Europe, the way free Europe survives is by holding together in cooperation and being ready to fight. And it's a little bit of a blast from the past. This is, you know, I, I don't want to talk about the Cold War, but this is very much the thing that I think many people in Europe thought was history. And and they're they're waking up this week and it's sinking in that 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 maybe power politics um, didn't go out of style, you know, uh, 30 years ago, but it's here. And it's here now, um, and that's uh, and that's a process of, of realization that um, that is is happening right now in Europe as we speak. I mean, I agree hundred percent. I think uh, in, you know well, um, a, a couple of things. One, um, you know, a few years ago when I was in Berlin, um, I was you know encountered someone who said that he wished as in someone who grew up in East Germany, he wished that the GDR had negotiated a better deal. This is someone who was nine years old when the wall went up. Uh, and this is, I think, not um, not an isolated opinion for you know a group of people who feel like they're now second-class citizens in their own country. Um, and so I think for us, the Cold War ended and everyone felt happy and like we had liberated an entire, you know, entire groups of people. Um, I think for Germany in particular. Uh, they didn't have this sense of, I mean, initially a sense of liberation, but the way the reunification worked out, it built a lot of resentments and actually increased a sense of East German identity, which I think really mirrors in a very frightening way. It mirrors exactly what Putin seems, the grievances Putin seems to be airing that are very personal for him. Um, that's, you know, for my one piece, one thought, but also um, what's really been interesting for me too to, is to see a possible movement in a public opinion in Finland and in Sweden regarding possible NATO membership. Uh, the the that you know, the opinion polls have shown an increase in, in interest in this. It, they're not, I think, there yet, but as um, Alexander Stubb said on CNN recently, uh, if, if, if that actually were on the table and politicians started talking about it actively, uh, he thinks a public opinion would go to the majority pretty quickly. In Finland, sorry. Sarah, let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit and talk about uh, cyber issues. There, there were at least a couple rounds of attacks by the Russians on Ukrainians, denial of service type attacks, some malware involved in their preliminary attack on Ukraine. But I think 
you know, uh, as, as a non-expert on this area, I think we, we expected to see more in the cyber realm from the Russians. They have formidable capability there. What's your, what's your sense of what we've seen so far in the past few days on, on the cyber front? Is it, is it possible here that, you know, the work the United States has done with Ukraine on cyber defense has had an impact and maybe the Russian, the Russians efforts in this area were blunted a little more than they, than they thought they would be? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, and I'm, I'm a little bit worried that you know, what we've seen is the tip of the spear. Um, And I think, you know, far, far more leading experts in this area than I am have have talked about, you know, the fact that one of the potential uh, retaliatory moves that Russia could make is to really sort of uh, unleash uh, the and, and give sort of like a carte blanche to ransomware gangs to, you know, uh, take back, uh, you know, there was there were some ransomware criminals that were arrested, they could they could be let go. Um, and that would be uh, that would be very difficult to then pinpoint uh, where those attacks are coming from that could cause a, a lot of damage. Um, I think we've got to we've got to really stay tuned on this, be working together uh, with our Ukrainian allies and, and other allies on on this, because cyber is going to be one of the uh, frontiers uh, of, of all this going forward, both from a nation state perspective, as well as uh, uh, from a cyber, uh, a, a more of a private threat actor perspective. Scott, let's turn to uh, American politics, uh, which is, uh, of course, a fraught topic. We've we've seen some folks in the political space uh, actually make remarks that are pro-Putin or, or seem to be very pro-Putin. The former pre- our former president uh, has uh, inexplicably praised uh, various aspects of Putin's character, which seems uh, amazingly discordant to me. Uh, but there is this there is a little bit of talk out there on the far right. And perhaps there's a little bit on the far left, too, of uh, folks who are, are willing to entertain alternative views. But I think in the in the grand scheme of things, my sense is mainstream Republicans and Democrats are fairly unified in their horror at what's happening in Ukraine, united in their opposition to Putin's efforts and united in their willingness to pursue uh, policy options short of U.S. involvement in the actual conflict to support Ukraine. What's you know, you you were on the Hill in, in some interesting offices. What's what's your sense of how the American political system is responding? Yeah, great question. Um, the way I think about it, you know, and I've seen these same comments um, that Tucker Carlson and the, and the, and the, and the whatnot uh, make these incredibly um, ignorant statements doesn't even begin to describe it. Um, but what, what I think is happening there is it, it's not really about foreign policy and it's not really about Russia. I, I, what I saw happening on the Hill um, in 2015 and 2016 is that um, you know, Russia and, and its foreign policy vocabulary got adopted into our domestic politics. And we started using the language of foreign policy to carry out very domestic partisan attacks. And we, we use sort of this, this, this bat or club of talking about Russia um, to, to, to beat up the other side. And, and what you thought about Putin or Russia became a proxy for where you stood on the domestic political landscape. Um, and so on, on one hand, um, it, 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 it's, it's uh, disturbing and, and I, I really dislike 
seeing any, uh, any part of the American political spectrum um, say such incredibly anti-American and wrong-headed things. But I, I also think these are people who don't really know exactly what they're talking about. And, 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 and they're using this as a tool because, um, because they know it gets to reaction and because it's an easy way um, to go after their, um, their political opponents. Um, you might say, you know, because you know, they dislike Joe Biden and Putin also dislikes Joe Biden, maybe in their head, there's a strange triangulation where you both have the right enemy. But, um, but for the most part, I think um, that is limited to a small corner um, of, of the American political spectrum and you know, probably best ignored. Uh, in most days. Arthur, you, you worked in the Senate. Uh, I think we were there at similar times. What, what's your read on the possibility that we see perhaps a new era in bipartisan cooperation on some of these big questions going forward? I actually am very optimistic. I mean, you know, I think the old adage about having an external enemy, uh, you know, uniting people domestically is probably pretty apt. Um, I think we've already seen a fair amount of bipartisanship, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, at least at least the overall results of what we want to see, uh, you know, between Senator you know, Menendez and Senator Risch. You know, I think they've both actually done a very good job of, uh, you know, pursuing the right goals um, and doing it together for the most part. I think, you know, the Republicans probably want to take things a little farther, um, you know, putting aside what, what you know, what Trump has, has to say about Putin, which is utterly ridiculous. Um, you know, I actually do think we have level-headed, um, clear-sighted Republicans in the Senate who are, who are actually quite hawkish on Russia. Um, and so anyway, I'm very optimistic and, and see a lot of opportunity for uh, additional bipartisanship, uh, particularly when it comes to Russia, and, and perhaps it will open up, you know, maybe it will occasion, you know, bring about occasions to interact more often with colleagues on the other side of the aisle, which, per, you know, build more relationships, which I feel like, um, you know, I feel like it's the the friendships that existed when we, when I was in the Senate, which, you know, go in the, in the late 90s, uh, for example, you know, they used to go to dinner together. Uh, they were buddies. Um, it was more of kind of a, a club, right? And and for whatever reason, I think in part um, in part because of uh, ironically because of ethics rules, uh, a lot of that socializing uh, went away, and that actually helped. You know, that, but also the the earmarks. Um, that that those are two elements that really. Um, uh, kind of kept kept things moving and 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 made it um, you know created personal bonds and, and personal relationships and that's what made the Senate work in the past. It's become too much like no offense to anyone, but it's become too much like the House of Representatives, which is much more partisan than the Senate is. I mean, the Senate is not supposed to be very partisan. Um, and it, if we could get back to that, um, you know, and, and maybe. Maybe one of the silver linings of this of this most you know, tragic situation could be more bi- more bipartisanship. Ah, let us hope, Sarah. Let's. Uh, this will be our exit question. Um, it, it seems to me, and I, and I think to other people as well, that 
a potential model here for um, responding to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is what the United States and, and its allies did to Iran uh, in the last decade as it was building up its nuclear weapons program, which was impose, of course, comprehensive sanctions, but also directly address the energy sector and really restrict uh, what what the West did was really restrict the ability of Iran to export oil and gas and and make any money on it. Is it is it plausible that we could adopt that model or some version of that model with Russia? Or is Russia's energy production so significant to world markets that that's really not an option? What are your thoughts? Well, this is the million dollar question, Les. Um, I think that we can do a lot. Uh, the EU can do a lot but we're not going to be able to do everything immediately. And that is going to be the gray area where um, a lot of the politics and, and, and challenges are going to arise. So the EU knows that it's dangerously reliant on Russia, and we've already seen uh, the EU making moves to try and diversify away. So the U.S., uh, exports of LNG to the EU have risen in the past few years. In fact, I think in 2021, the U.S. was even maybe the largest supplier of, of LNG. However, uh, the EU is uh, deriving 20% of its total energy from gas, and Russia still accounts for 40% of that. So um, there is still a, a deep reliance there. What's interesting is that the reliance is both geographically and sectorally varied, so what I mean by that is there are certain sectors like fertilizer production that rely entirely on gas. Other sectors do not. Um, geographically, uh, the EU's dependence on gas from Russia is, is, is very variable. The Sweden doesn't use any uh, gas from Russia, whereas Poland, Germany, uh, and, and others are, are highly, highly reliant. So there's going to be different considerations among different member states and among different sectors about how quickly you can turn off the spigot of reliance on Russia. Um, we can turn to other sources. As I said, um, the U.S. is, is supplying more LNG. Um, there are some limitations to that. I know the U.S. would like to do more. And as a side note, um, you know, there is uh, another advantage of the EU sourcing LNG from the US, which is that our production of LNG is uh, far less carbon intensive. So there is a climate dimension to this as well. Um, but there's limitations. The EU has limitations on its storage capacity for LNG and building that up and changing sources overnight is going to be unlikely. So I think that, you know, the this is a real this is a real wake up call and it's going to vastly accelerate the moves that were already in motion uh, to shift to renewables and to other sources. But a a full cold turkey on energy right now uh, to to cut off the supply from from Russia to the EU and frankly, from Russia, even to the US, because we're a major importer of, of petroleum from from Russia. Um, could have some pretty serious ramifications if there's no plan B, C, and D that are already in place. And I hope that there are, um, because this is probably the sector where if we did move in that direction, we could have the most uh, uh, impact 
at, on Russia, but it would also be sort of somewhat of a mutually assured destruction because it would also have the most impact on, on the people in the EU and, and potentially beyond. Yeah, we know how people, uh, how sensitive people are to gas prices for sure. Martha, Scott, any final thoughts? Yeah, I'll just jump in and, and point, you know, just one thing that will be interesting to watch is what happens with the NATO Founding Act. Uh, this was signed in 1997 uh, between NATO and Russia. Um, you know, it's supposed to guide relations, uh, you know, building increased trust, unity of purpose, you know, consultation and cooperation. And part of that, um, um, you know, was Russia's obligation to this. Uh, was to, you know, exercise restraint and conventional force deployments in Europe. Um, and, and, you know, so our rotational uh, deployments on the eastern flank of NATO could potentially uh, become more permanent. Um, so this is something to watch in the coming days, because there have already been, there were calls to, to, to end this founding act uh, a few years ago, and these are coming up again. Scott? I think my, my final thought would be um, going back to the topic of sanctions. Um, on one hand, a lot of what we're doing now was probably predicted uh, by the Kremlin and by Putin. And to a certain extent, it's probably been priced in. It's expected. And so I, I think we've, between 2014, um, all, all the other various election-related things or uh, MH17 or all of the other events um, of the last uh, seven years or so, um, we've sanctioned and done the low-hanging fruit. For the most part, um, we, we've done the easy things. And we're at a point now where going further uh, does mean there's trade-offs. There's cost. Uh, there might be an increase in gas prices for American consumers. There will definitely be an increase in, uh, in heating prices here in Europe. Um, and one of the things I'm looking for and hoping to see, um, maybe both in Washington and certainly in Berlin and European capitals, is political leaders who are preparing their populations and speaking honestly about this um, and saying that if we want to live in the free world, um, you know, the, this is not, not cost-free, and, and this is not just a cost that's going to be borne by the Ukrainian people or, or Ukraine as a, you know, as, as a buffer state, but this is something that um, will have to be felt and paid for by all of us. And, and I think our leaders need to be very honest, um, very honest about that. Uh, and until and until we're honest about that, we will have this artificial self-imposed cap on our ability to respond. And the Kremlin knows that. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. For more on the latest developments, be sure to follow along on our blog, The Skiff, and our Twitter, at MasonNatSec. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet at us. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jesse Klober, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 